1: Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Sethian Devadas, a co-author of Mage Merlin's Unsolved Mathematical Mysteries. There are very few math books that merit the adjective charming, but this is one of them. The authors have chosen a truly unique, creative, and charming way to acquaint readers with some of the unsolved problems of mathematics. Some are fairly well known, others less so but all are intriguing. They have woven the problems into a coherent story, and I think you'll enjoy hearing and reading both the story and the associated problems. Sethian, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for inviting me, Jim. Excited to be here.
1: Sethian, I understand that one of the reasons that you wrote this book was to help people realize that math is not only beautiful, but contains many apparently simple problems that even the best mathematicians have been unable to resolve. Some of the problems in the book are so easy to describe that you could really say to someone, do try this at home. Who knows? You might become famous.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the main motivating factors for us, uh, Matt Harvey, my co-author and I, to write the book is that when most people think about mathematics, you're either thinking about very old things, you know, like the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, or maybe you have a formula like the quadratic formula you might have learned in high school, um, hundreds if not thousands of years old, or you're thinking about some indescribable equation that you usually see in a TV show or in a movie, you know, on a chalkboard or on one of those whiteboards. and. Math is always at these extremes. Either it's old stuff or, or undecipherable stuff. And what we wanted to do is how can you just get the reader to get an access into the edge of knowledge, kind of to get, get them to the frontier of math and get excited about it. So that, that's what really motivated us in the beginning.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that I enjoyed about this book was that the problems you chose aren't something like the Riemann hypothesis, which you would put up on one of those whiteboards, which requires a considerable background in college-level mathematics to understand. They are problems which can be readily understood with no advanced mathematics. Of course, actually solving them is likely to require some sophisticated tools, but you never know which is part of the charm of these problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things about just the subject of math is when you write a research paper with collaborators, everybody writes their name in alphabetical order. You know, in the sciences, a lot of times it's the person who owns the laboratory and the chemicals and has the grant. They get their name at the end, kind of saying they're the person behind, you know, behind everything. And the first author is usually the person who contributed the most. And it kind of trickles down, you know, postdocs to researchers, to grad students, to undergrads. But in math, the 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 tradition has always been everybody just writes in alphabetical order, and the reason is even one person who might have just spoken ten words during an entire you know twenty week research project might have said exactly those ten words that would have been needed to get over that hump. You know, they might have had that aha moment that somebody spent you know spending twenty weeks daily at a chalkboard might not have been able to push through. So that that's one of the reasons I love mathematics, and I love a book like this where. People can possibly, you know, kick the ball down the field just a little bit without um, without realizing that I need to have put in 30 years of work to actually contribute to the, to the edge of knowledge in this field.
1: And one of the things that's surprising is that that happens, I won't say with some frequency, but one of the things is that <laughs> incredible problems are sometimes contributed to by people that you would not expect and that actually occurred later in your book so i won't mention specifics now but one person that i would like to bring up is mariam mirjah and in some senses the book is a tribute to her she was a truly remarkable woman and i think the listeners would enjoy hearing a little of her story
2: well the the theme of the book is about camelot so you have merlin Uh, who's sort of like MacGyver. You know, I grew up watching MacGyver as a kid, and he kind of gets called in to do the impossible, you know, Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And if you kind of think about Camelot for a second, you realize there are no women in the story. I mean, there's Guinevere, but really it's, you know, Lancelot and then Percival and these Knights of the Round Table. There's Merlin, there's Arthur. And even Arthur, the classic story, he has two sons. So where are the women? So one of the things we wanted is, you know, as we chose Camelot to be the background story, because crazy things can happen, and we wanted some crazy stories uh, in here, we realized we really wanted a voice of a woman. And uh, Miriam Marzakani is, she's a superstar. So in mathematics, you know, there's no, um, there's no uh, Nobel Prize, Jim. There's only the Fields Medal. And the way the Nobel Prize works is, you usually get the Nobel. When you're in your 80s, first work you've done in your 20s or 30s, you know, you did something in semiconductor field and 50 years of that work influencing and impacting the world makes the Nobel Committee realize, oh, my gosh, this is actually worth it and how amazing that work was way back when. But the Fields Medal in mathematics, you get it every one every four years, right? So it happens uh, sporadically. But more importantly, um, you have to get it before you're 40. You have to get it 39 or less. And so you must have been able to rock the mathematics world at relatively a young age and made that contribution. And in the history of the Fields Medal, no woman has ever won it, except the first and the only one has been Miriam Erzakhani. She's an Iranian mathematician. She was a, a professor at Stanford. She won the medal, I think, in 2014. She was about 37 years old. And within three years, by the time she, uh, it was t- 2017, when she was 40, she passed away due to breast cancer. Which was incredibly tragic, and um, but one of the things I loved about Miriam's work, and there's all of these biographies that are coming out, you know, through the through the mathematics community of people telling stories about how uh, wonderful she was and how she worked, is that she would always be drawing and doodling, and that that's sort of how she thought she her her research is related to superficially to a certain degree related to mine. She cared about very visual things, and so do I, geometric things, and but she studied. Um, sort of like lines on surfaces like geodesics the shortest point uh distance between two points on surfaces and counting them and and thinking about how they would look and um one of my favorite things is the fact that she doodled all the time and she's this incredibly curious person we thought man there's no other person like that than to than to be the narrator of our story
1: yeah you know um when you were mentioning that i was thinking of another classic doodler was richard feynman in physics
2: yes Yes, absolutely. I think you know there's so much one of the things we wanted the book to be is um the this kind of pull beyond thinking about math as the feeder to technology. You know, when you think about math, it's it's kind of the underpinning of uh, science, of technology, of engineering, so much of what the Silicon Valley and the buzz is about, certainly in the West Coast and driving sort of financial models and data analytics in the in the East Coast in new York. and um and you realize, gosh, there's there's something very human about taking a piece of chalk, or um, you know, just taking a, a pencil and a piece of paper and just drawing these ideas out, rather than staring at a computer screen. And I think more about this, uh, especially in this COVID time that we have, right? We're all kind of wedded on this on this digital medium, which which has been powerful, but at the same time, uh, dehumanizing in some ways. So we wanted to kind of get away from that and and to actually have a you know a paper book where you can actually draw and doodle and play around with these things.
1: Yeah, you know, when I ask uh, publishers to send me copies of books that I'm going to do podcasts on, I always want something that I can touch and feel and move my finger along the page and look at pictures. And you just can't do that with a computer screen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm reminded of Malcolm Gladwell. One of my favorite pieces he's ever written is this piece called um, "The Social Life of Paper," and in that he actually says that you know the the old way of keeping track of data were, were the scrolls. You know, you'd you'd have these scrolls where you'd kind of you know, either uh, Hebrew scripture or Assyrian documents, Babylonian things were all in scrolls and tablets. And, um, he said this invention of the book was remarkable because what you could do with the book, this is kind of what you're pointing at, Jim, is like you could jump to the page you want immediately, right? You could you can I, I I guarantee if I ask you, you know, pick your favorite stories or novels or your book you grew up reading. And you can sort of tell on the bottom left corner is when Huck Finn, you know something happened to him or the top right in the Lord of the Rings. And you can kind of remember which parts and where in the book it was. And And the iPad actually, unfortunately, kind of goes us back to the scroll world, right? Like now we have to kind of scroll through the whole thing to get down there rather than this immediate access. So we wanted this playfulness of jumping into stories and out of stories the way you wanted to.
1: Well, your book is certainly playful, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, You know, we live in an era in which women are making substantial inroads into fields such as mathematics, in which women have been historically unrepresented, why do you suppose this has happened in the past and currently what are we doing to improve it and what can be done to help more women become interested in mathematics
2: oh gosh that's you know i think it's
1: a book in itself it's yeah it's it's
2: true and in, in a very big sense you know we as humans are broken broken individuals who are selfish in many things and Um, Regardless of how you view things in a good way, maybe the patriarchal society was good in several things, but at the same time, anything with power turns into poison and abuse. And I think, um, you know, I think mathematics in many ways is a language. You know, I think of it as French or German or... Um, where, where the more you speak that language, the more you, you get comfort in playing with it and creating with it and, um, and having a joy to it. It's just, you could think of it as baking or cooking, you know, you know, once you know the basics, you could add to that and you have this repertoire and you can create new dishes that you never thought was possible because you're learning these little pieces of this language of how food works. Um, but, Women have not historically for millennia, even the century, have not been allowed to kind of learn and speak this language of mathematics. Women I knew who mentored me were some of the, you know, first women or some of the first few women who um, got PhDs in certain several institutions, first women allowed to get through to get PhDs in math. So you can imagine this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an old man, but not that old. Right. To at least understand that kind of a perspective of the fact this is recent in our time. And. And even if people, even if women weren't allowed to speak the language of math and to learn about it, they certainly were and are discouraged. You know, hey, that's not, you know, that that might not be the right thing for you, this kind of stuff, but you know, you should kind of fool around with these kind of things. And um, the moment you get that, you realize that because, I kind of alluded to this thing about math being the fuel to technology, science, and engineering, there's a lot of power in the world today about who gets to be at that table and who gets to speak, and to me, more importantly, as somebody who's curious, this joy of falling in love with problems and accessing problems that are so beautiful that Miriam Mirzakhani, as an example, was able to just doodle and play with, that is, you know, that's what's heartbreaking. So, uh, you know, to kind of answer the second part of your question about how to do this, I think to really have your eyes open to, towards what's happening in elementary school to junior high, to high school, to college, that, you know, you have people in contact with, cousins and nephews and aunts, uncles, or your own children, or or even parents, uh, but they're wonderful organizations. Like one of my favorite is uh, the AWM, the Association for Women in Math, who have had like wonderful presidents, organizational structures, who are really embedded from almost all levels of education and academic life as, as to bring women to uh, prominence and to level the playing field as much as possible.
1: Oh, I mean, that's one of the things that, that we've absolutely got to do. And it's sort of interesting in that um, math hasn't, for the most part, math hasn't suffered from the, uh, I guess, I I don't like to invent phrases like ethnic suppression, but it doesn't seem to have happened in mathematics to the extent that there's been the gender suppression, because you can find great mathematicians in practically every country, every ethnicity, but it's awfully hard to find great mathematicians who were women. And of course, Miriam Mar- Mirjarkhani and Emmy Nurter who preceded her, are two utterly outstanding examples.
2: That's, yeah, I think you make a good point. But um, just to push back a little bit, I'd say that in America, because of racial tensions you see clearly and disparities there, That that's going to be reflected in mathematics and academia. If you, for example, if you want to see the number of uh, African-American mathematicians in a certain region, which has a high African-American population, you see that it's very low. It's, it's the same kind of a lens that you can look at it, too. I think I think you're right nationally or I mean, internationally, it's one story, but um, even nationally in it's sa- another. You're absolutely. Yeah. Right. Even in San Diego, where I'm at, you would think that there'd be a lot of um, Latino, Latina mathematicians being so close to the border, having such a rich heritage near Mexico and in the south. And I don't find that here at all. And so that's that is troubling.
1: Yeah, you know, I could go into that because the chair of the mathematics department at which I taught was um, Mexican. And he had an explanation for that. But that's for another interview. Let's get back to your book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, as I said at the start of the interview, the problems you introduce are woven into a story. What is the theme of the story? And how did you happen to choose it? Well, we know it's Camelot. But
2: how did you get there? Yeah that is a that's a great question. That's so the book actually started because we wanted the book to be a reflection of what we were trying to say the physical book itself. So it actually started originally as a children's board book. You know um like the very hungry caterpillar, you know one of those thick board books that you oh, get wow. and you give to <laughs> give to a one-year-old or two-year-old or yeah, even a five-year-old. Say, and, wow. Yeah, and we wanted – I mean, when I dreamt of this idea, I thought, my gosh, you know, these problems are – like have a childlike quality to them. So what if we actually represented it uh, in an embodied state that was childlike? So you know, we wanted these chunky board books. You'd open it up, and each one would be this beautiful two-page spread of a chunky board book of an unsolved problem, right? And you flip it open, and you'd get to the next unsolved problem. And, and we thought that would be so much fun to do. And we actually um, – We had a beautiful agent who pursued... Uh, you know, Penguin and Random—you know—all of these big, uh, big book pub- publishers. And it was interesting; they didn't know what to do with it because it was um, either they would fall it into the kids section, you know, where it would be with, oh, next yeah. to the very no. ugly no. caterpillar, right, yeah. which would not make sense because you still need some maturity to understand these problems. Sure. Or they would—they would see, well, how is this book going to be sitting next to Richard Feynman's book or Richard Dawkins' book on the shelf, right? When when they have those big books and all of a sudden you have this little board book, and so they just didn't even know how to pitch it. Um, and the more we talked about this book to uh, MIT and to several other editors, one of the things that came up with our friends was that they were frustrated that if we did have a board book that there was no um, – one of my friends, uh, Matt Nix, who's a, a TV writer and producer, he said there's there's sort of no answer key. I mean not that there was an answer <laughs> key that you needed, but, you're not but he just have wanted to like problems. lift the hood of the car a little bit, right? And, and like, gosh, you know, how would I even begin to approach these problems and my co-author and I, Matt and I, didn't want the readers to go to Wikipedia, right? We didn't want to have them leave the book to click on something to understand more about the problem. We wanted it to be right there. So that's when we, that's when, you know, when we were fooling around with this stuff, we thought, oh, what if there's a narrator who's able to explain the problem a little bit more? And so that that, that story started uh, getting woven in. So the book went from a little chunky board book to a almost like a picture book, like a six by eight beautiful picture book. So um, the story of Camelot, the reason we picked some kind of a king and a queen basically was simply because we needed our characters to do crazy things. You know, if you're going to have these unsolved problems, we wanted all of the problems to be connected to each other. There's, I don't think there's even a mention of an equation in any of the Merlin pages, right? Merlin's just talking about building tents in the middle of a forest, or trying to fix a broken window, or arranging rowboats. You know, it's it's just really simple, straightforward day-to-day stuff you'd see. So we wanted a kind of a down-to-earth thing, but at the same time, he was arranging hundred rowboats. Right. Or making a 100 tents in the field or making a monument with 33 oak trees that grew to the sky. So we wanted something crazy, somebody who had basically infinite money. And so we we settled on a king and a queen and we thought Merlin would be a cool punchline to kind of go around that story. Yeah.
1: You know, in the start of the book, um, you use an ice cream cone to describe your view of unsolved math problems. And I thought that was an intriguing way to do so.
2: Uh, yeah, one of the things that, uh, I can, I think that you kind of pointed at one of the philosophical, uh, philosophical points we wanted to make, which is, you know, most people think of mathematics as, or maybe even academics in general, but certainly in the mathematical perspective as this mountain, almost like, uh, you know, the Himalayas you're trying to climb, right? You want to climb Everest or Fuji. And, um, and the way you think of it is like, well, the, you know, the base is sort of the elementary school, you're learning addition and subtraction. And as you kind of climb the mountain, you know more and more math. And, you know, many people kind of drop out at a certain level, right? Altitude, math, altitude sickness sets in. And gosh, you know, trig is, I'm done at a trig. You know, one of the things I want to point out to him is when I asked people, uh, you know, I give talks all over and I ask them, hey, you know, I'm a mathematician and we have this conversation. The first thing most people say is that how I guess um, they want me to forgive them of their mathematical sins because they (laughs) remember clearly where they stopped climbing the ladder, right? If I ask most people what what the last history class they took was, they say, oh, I don't know what the last history class, guess, was, was it Japanese-American, was it World War II? I don't remember, I took it in high school, I took it in college, I don't remember what that last, and if say, what's the last English class, right? Oh, was it Shakespeare, or was that after I took the one on Beowulf, right? But if I ask them what the last math class is, they could tell you the day they took that last final exam, and they never had to look at pre-calc again, right? It's so seared into their memories. And so people remember, when they, if you have this like mountain analogy, they think exactly when they stopped going up that mountain, I said, you know, I got off at like, you know, at 1500 altitude or thir- you know, 3,200 altitude. And they just remember those things. And they think the very tip of the mountain is is kind of the snow and the goodness of unsolved mathematics, right? Only the gods me- make it to the top where the real good stuff is. And uh, and what we wanted to do literally was to flip that on its head. And my belief is that mathematics is like um, an ice cream cone filled with ice cream. You know, the entire cone is filled with ice cream and there's just big, scoop on top. And even if you take a bite at the very bottom, you're still getting a little bit of ice cream. And, you know, as you kind of nibble your cone from the bottom up, you're getting more and more ice cream. And I think of those ice cream as unsolved problems. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry, didn't mean to No, I was right. going to say, yeah, I was going to say, like, um, you know, I think of those those things as unsolved problems where, where even if you take uh, the, the idea of just addition and multiplication, you now know problems in mathematics that nobody knows how to solve. And of course, the more of the cone you know, the more unsolved problems are available to you. And by the top, you know, by the time you get to a doctorate level, man, there are mounds of these things. And you realize it's infinitely many unsolved problems out there that you can you can play with till the day you die for, for generations. But but even with the basic stuff, you still have access to it and you don't need to make it to the top of the mountain. It's right there for you waiting. You
1: sure don't. Um, One of the things, as you were just talking, um, it occurred to me that your experiences in telling people that you're a mathematician are slightly different from mine, because, well, first of all, I'm older than you, but I always got one of two reactions. They would always say either, that was always my worst subject, or... (laughs) I'll bet you can really balance your checkbook.
2: Yes. yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Jim, because one of the other notions we wanted to, uh, you know, maybe one of these fallacies we wanted to break through was the notion that math is exactly about numbers and equations, right? And so people think that, Gosh, you know, I know about addition and subtraction. Maybe prime numbers, and there's some formulas with the you know things getting squared. And so, what do you what do you do as a research mathematician? You must be squaring and cubing things forever, right? And uh, we just wanted to get this notion of the playfulness of mathematics. That yeah, the numbers are part of it, but. Numbers are one way of measuring things. Some people are great at studying and quantifying numbers. I'm not. Some people are great at studying and quantifying um, functions and change, you know, sine and cosine and exponential functions, and that's not my gift. But some people love to study uh, patterns about shape, and that's what I love to do. I love geometry and topology, which is about shape. So one of the things we were really intentional about the book is we wanted to slice through as many different kinds of mathematics as possible as these subjects within math to get a get a flavor for our audience to get and to fall in love with
1: you know i couldn't have asked for a better setup line to get into some of the math problems that you investigate because i want to discuss those because they're so much fun and the first one in the book is one you call the great hall window which i'd never seen before and it's absolutely lovely why don't you tell the
2: uh, listeners about it yeah, It's one of my favorite problems. Um, I think we wanted to open with the book, uh, open the book with that problem because it's ridiculous. I mean, it's this problem is almost the the definition of what the book is about in terms of uh, the example that it shows. So here's 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 the real straight up thing. And of course, it has that Camelot um a veneer on top of this thing about Merlin trying to uh, trying to cover a window in this beautiful sacred hall that's protecting Excalibur the sword, but you know if you kind of strip that down a little bit and kind of just for our uh, other listeners to understand, uh, the problem goes like this: Imagine you have a, a two by two square, a simple square that's two you know uh, length two on one side and length height two on the other, and two by two, you could easily take four one by one little squares and cover it up right imagine that the two by two square shining light and you want to cover up the light so you put four of these one by one absolutely straightforward to do um, that you could see that visually in your mind's eye and now the problem changes a little bit just a little bit in fact it changes almost microscopically imagine you have a 2.0000001 by 2.00001 square in other words the square has just gotten bigger just a a hair's length on every side, and light is still shining through it. And now the question is, you have these one by one tiles. You have a bunch of them on the floor, and you can use those tiles to cover up to make sure not a crack of light comes through this two by two square. It's a little bit bigger than a two by two. and And, honey, how many tiles do you need? Now, the rule is you can't crush the tiles, right? You can't break them and fill in the grout. Uh, But you you can place them on top of each other. You could rotate them. You could move them in any way you want to to cover up this window opening. And if you think about it a little bit, you see that nine tiles, uh, three by three by three, is way overkill, but it does it. And as most beautiful math results go, like um, questions go, can you make you know can you name that tune in eight tiles? And can you name that tune in seven tiles? Can you do it with less and less work? How much can you get away with? Four is you know four is way too little because Four will give you that two by two, but you're still going to miss that crack. So you, you definitely, don't have enough area with four ex- you don't even have enough area. Exactly. Right. So five, mm-hmm. it turns out you have tons of area because if you have, you know, five one by one tiles, that's more than enough area for that little two by two with a little extra kick. But you can mathematically prove that five will never work. And the proof is beautiful. It's geometric. It's elegant. And you can actually show, and we show in this book, that seven does work. You can actually get away with seven. You can rotate the other tiles a little bit in a very clever, symmetric way, and you can cover it with seven. And the magic number is six. So five's too little, seven works. Can you get away with six? And that's unsolved. (laughs) And I found that ridiculous, is the sense that no mathematician has ever figured out how this problem works on covering a square with little squares. And, uh, and not only is that problem solved, but one of the things that we show as Miriam, um, our narrator, is, you know, once you see Merlin struggle with covering it up with those six tiles, she then in the next few pages goes behind the scenes a little bit. This is the non-answer key, where then where she's able to tell you Well, here's the bigger problem that that problem falls under. And here's the bigger language of mathematics that people care about. And, you know, we've tried these kind of things and here's the limits to our knowledge so far. So I I love that uh, insight that she could offer, too, even if not that it's going to help you get unstuck a little bit, but just to give you a framing of this bigger story.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off you know
1: thinking about this problem and the fact that you originally wanted to do this is sort of a board book yeah. you could actually do this problem and fit the squares. you know fit the squares in and say here can you do this give them six one by ones and the 2.01 by 2.01 And uh, you could have done that with a board book, but at least you can describe it here. And that's all that's necessary because somebody can
2: just get, you know, uh, sheets of paper and do it. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that that actually goes nicely with this book itself, you know, we've been fooling around with this thing. Should there be like a, a kit, you know, just like a plastic kit of some of these things that people can play with? And. And, you know, that's one of those struggles we've been having in our heads. But there's also a joy in just getting a piece of chalk and going to, you know, a sidewalk or, you know, just a stencil with some, you know, some pen and paper and just actually you cutting things up and fooling around with it. And, you know, one, there's another problem in here about unfolding boxes, right? These Amazon boxes you might be getting nowadays due to COVID. And it's this beautiful gift wrapping thing where you can just actually go and just play with boxes by yourself.
1: Um, we'll get to that in a little bit, because that's one of the problems I wanted to discuss. But the next one I sort of alluded to a little earlier in the interview, you call it the Blessed Birthday Banquet, but it's hmm. actually about a very, very famous problem in which recently some surprising inroads were made. It's called the Twin Prime Conjecture.
2: Yeah, this is... Um, so. I think you, you bring a beautiful contrast. The first problem actually was not well-known at all in the mathematics circle. It's um, it's a problem that kind of appears in discrete geometry and uh, kind of pokes its head in computational geometry. But the second problem, this ber- blessed birthday banquet, is probably one of the most famous problems in all of mathematics, <laughs> um, the twin primes conjecture. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, elegant problem and its... Um, it, it feels like it's absolutely doable. So here's the question if you think about a prime number is a prime number is something that's not made up of um, numbers kind of multiplied and put together so seven is a prime number but um, nine is made up of three and three put together so nine is not prime so so here's a really simple question uh you think about these prime numbers and imagine prime numbers are kind of glowing red in the number line right so all of the regular numbers the whole numbers are glowing white but then the prime numbers the special ones kind of glow red and if you look at this number line and you look at one two three four five six seven eight and keeps going down you realize that the prime numbers, the, the red dots g- glow less and less. There's less and less of them because there's a lot of these white ones that you could multiply together to get more and more of these other ones. So you're running out of these red dots. And But if you keep going far enough, you keep seeing these red dots. And, and the question that was asked um, by Euclid, actually, 300 BCE, is do these prime numbers go on forever? And he was able to prove... You know, over 2,000 years ago, yes, the prime numbers do go on forever, right? So that's a classic result. It's, it takes, like, a few lines. It's a beautiful result to get people excited about it, um, and the proof is elegant. And then the question was, well, if you stare at these things, these primes come in a funny grouping. For example, you notice that 3 and 5 are prime, and they're right next to each other. Now, when I say right next to, the number between it is an even number, four. And four, you know, any even number will never be prime because it's you can divide by two. So let's kind of get rid of the even guys for now and just look at the odd ones. And notice that three and five are next to each other. Five and seven are literally next to each other. So we call them twins. And then, you know, seven and nine, well, nine is not prime, but 11 and 13 are. And then 17 and 19 are. So they're these kind of primes, these red lights that come in pairs. Uh, it's not just these glowing red lights that go on forever forever. Um, because of Euclid in the sea of white, but these reds somehow kind of pop up in pairs also. And the question was, do these twins, do these twin prime numbers exist forever as you look down there? In other words, for any number you could imagine, 285 trillion, is there a twin prime that comes after that? And gosh, Jim, this is crazy, but, you know, so little progress in one sense has been made that we were almost spinning our wheels. Now, this question opened the door to lots of other questions and beautiful mathematics machinery from number theory to algebraic geometry to even topology. A lot of things kind of were uh, were in that area. But I think you alluded to, to this uh, to this remarkable thing that happened um, uh, less than a decade ago, about seven years ago. In 2013, there's a mathematician, uh, Yi Tang Zhang, where, where he came up with this result. He said, okay, I can't tell you if the twin primes are there forever, but I can tell you that if you find a prime, I'm going to find another prime that's less than 70 million away from that one. (laughs) And And that goes on forever. In other words, primes forever will come in these pairs where they're 70 million apart from each other. Now, of course, what we want that is you want that number to be not 70 million, right, but you want that number to be two. You want it to be like three plus two is five and and uh, 11 plus two is 13. You want it to be just two away. You'd love to shrink that 70 million down to two, but man, we had nothing until 2013. And this amazing result comes out due to dedication, hard work and standing on the shoulders of brilliant mathematicians. And so Zhang kind of rocked the world with this. And then the moment that breakthrough happened, the moment Zhang introduced a set of tools and ideas uh, and thought that people hadn't thought about before, um, then people took that. And now the number, I think, is 246. So instead of 70 million, we've shrunk that down to always primes come in these pairs that are at most 246 apart. We'd like to shrink that 246 down to two. And that's the state of the art right now.
1: Now, you know, one of the things also that I find fascinating about the Zhang story is Zhang worked at a school that probably nobody else who's famous in mathematics had ever come from, the University of New Hampshire. He was a part-timer and he was supporting himself Um, He was supporting himself by managing a subway franchise while he was working on this problem.
2: Yeah, that I mean, one of uh, just one of the most beautiful stories in mathematics in recent times about dedication, perseverance, but most importantly, just the love of mathematics. Right? Zhang's just kind of working when he can get it, just get, has his foot in the door, but he's spending his time just chipping away and chipping away. And when actually asked why people hadn't done what Zhang had done, you know when, when you'd asked the the other mathematicians who were experts in the field, they just said, well, you could, but man, you just have to have this persistence to chip away at that. You know if you want if you want to go and appear on the other side of the mountain that way, man, you got to go through it and be just faithfully diligent. We were trying to find shortcuts in elegant ways. And so there's this notion of kind of his character coming through it, this beauty of what it means to be a human and at the same time a mathematician. Oh, my gosh, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, It's a, it's a great story. One, uh, we've got just a number of problems here because I think you have like 15 or 16 in the book. No way we can talk about all of them. But because you alluded to this one a little earlier, I'd like to talk about it. It's one you call glorious gift wrappings.
2: Yes, oh my gosh. This is actually a problem that's close to my heart. I'm actually um, this problem is uh, <laughs> what's the right way of framing it? it's it's so elegant and gorgeous and becoming more popular that I am trying to solve not this problem, but problems kind of around this that have this kind of a flavor. so it's it's something that's close to my own personal research. But um the problem is simply stated as this. Imagine you have a box. And the box is not a, you know, a, a, a rectangular box, but just a random shaped box, you know, random triangles and, and pentagons and, you know, some weird, imagine you, you've taken Mickey Mouse and put Mickey Mouse in a box, right? Like some, the ears are sticking out and who knows how these polygons are are put in around Mickey Mouse. The only rules are, of course, that the sides of the box have to be flat, right? So it's made up of a bunch of flat panels that have been sewn together, stitched together along these along these hinges, these edges of the box. And now the question is the following thing. If you have such a box, it's all closed up, can you take a knife and cut the box up so that the box unfolds, you're almost like peeling the box like an orange, so that it unfolds, and you have a couple of conditions, it has to unfold, it has to lay flat on the floor, um, and then the pieces have to not overlap. So it has to be a connected, unfolded thing that lies flat on the floor so the pieces can't overlap. And it turns out that when you actually try this for, you can create a computer program that randomly creates such boxes. And, and then you could try to cut it up in lots of different ways. And it turns out there always happens to be ways to do it for every box we've tried. But of course, there are infinitely many boxes and we're only trying finitely many of them. So the question is that. Uh, there's, a, there's a little tweak to this question, Jim, that I find actually more fascinating. And this is actually motivated by the work of Albrecht Durer. Um, you know, renaissance superstar and you know one of the things that durer wanted to do was he wanted to draw polyhedra you know the dodecahedron or the cube or you know any kind of um, any kind of a polyhedral structure he wanted to draw it but he wanted to preserve the geometry he wanted to talk about the cube that looked like 90 degrees everywhere you know nice sharp corners at the end these 90 degree corners but if you if you look at any drawing you know you need to have that perspective drawing right like you need to have that point at infinity so when you're putting a cube and you're trying to draw this thing, you know, the angles always kind of bend a little bit because you have to draw it in space. So it looks like this perspective drawing. So he's been he was thinking, like, how do I draw a cube, but yet have the 90 degreeness to a cube and, and they talk about the panels. And I want it to be all connected so people can get the cubiness for it. And he <laughs> and he came up with this really cool idea, which in a cool way nobody had thought of seriously before, where he actually cut along the edges of the cube so he did the same thing that I'm talking about, which is cut along the box so it unfolds flat, it stays connected, and the flaps don't overlap, right? He wanted to do that, except he restricted himself, To only cutting along the edges, because the edges are where the seams and the weaknesses are anyway. So let's just you know, like visually imagine. Take take a regular cube, and um, you can actually imagine cutting along the edges and flapping it open, so it actually looks like a a cross, right? These six squares that form a cross. The four um, sides around each around a square kind of flap up, and then the longer side of the cross flaps up and you know caps the top. So that's one way you can unfold the cube, and there are lots of different ways of unfolding it. And what Durer did was he actually took Platonic solids and Archimedean solids, these beautiful symmetric objects, you know, that, that he had learned from Euclid and all these superstars that had existed hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and he started unfolding them and came up with these beautiful drawings of unfoldings. And those things are called nets. It's a net of a polyhedron. And then the question was, given any convex polyhedron, things that look like a cube were, um, or a sphere where one side and the other side are visible being on the inside of it, that's not the horn of a Viking, but in a convex object, given one of these polyhedra, can you always cut along the edges and laid flat? And this problem was really brought to light in the 80s. And when the computer scientists kind of came in and intersected the mathematicians about thinking about these ideas of geometry, and it is Absolutely unsolved. In fact, one of my favorite things about this problem, Jim, is that if you're asking the experts in the world today if you have to bet on this thing being true or false, in other words, yes, every polyhedron ever made that's convex, you can cut along the edges and lay it flat and get a net. I'd say it's a 50-50 shot. Most people would think, yeah, sure. You'd think everything we've ever tried, every computer software that's ever run has always been able to find one that works. So yeah, of course, we think everything's going to work. We just don't know why it's going to work. On the other hand there's a group of mathematicians and computer scientists who are I'd say a good you know an equally good majority on this side too 51% 51% almost on that side who would say you know what maybe we, the reason it's working is all of these things are have so much so little symmetry maybe there's a crazy object that's so symmetric that no matter how you try to cut it it's always going to mess you up and we just don't understand this notion of cutting just yet so it's it's really cool about about even putting the bet on the solution for this thing, right? Unlike the previous problem that we talked about, about this twin primes thing where people think it is true and, you, and you're getting closer and closer to that mystical number of P plus two. Now we don't even know what the instinct is going to be. So it's, it's, I love it. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about
1: reading your book is coming across unsolved problems that I'd absolutely never heard of before. Mm-hmm. And the next one that I want to discuss was the perfect cake combinations problem. Mm. Because it's hard to imagine one that's easier to
2: understand. And beautiful. Yeah, the, I, I love... I mean, this is a very different problem than the previous ones we've been talking about. And part of it is the intentionality of kind of mixing these up. But this problem really has to do with numbers, right? So far, we've been thinking about, you know, wrapping geometric objects, or, you know, the windows and the squares. The twin prime conjecture got to this notion of numbers by multiplying, and this cake uh, problem comes to numbers by factoring. So, if you could imagine a a number like six and look at all of its factors—the things that make up six—you would see that, you know, one divides into six, uh, two does, and then three does. Uh, four doesn't, five doesn't, of course, six itself does, but we, we look at the proper ones, right? Not not the ones that, it, that it's itself. And if you look at those numbers, one, two, and three, and you add it up, one plus two plus three, you get six. That's cool. And then you try this, you know, you try it for some other number like uh, 21, right? So one goes into 21, three goes into 21, seven goes into 21, and that's it. And so one plus three plus seven is, 11, which is not 21. (laughs) So 6 is a very special number because its factors kind of add up to give you this number 6. And then after that, you realize, for example, like 28, 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 7 plus 14, those are the factors of 28, will actually add up to give you 28. And so, Jim, those numbers are called perfect numbers. And It turns out if you kind of look at the art of perfect numbers and actually study them, you know, 6 is one of them and 28 is one of them, it's actually quite difficult to find these guys. Uh, Just how do you actually come up with another perfect number? You got to sort of try every factoring and add it up. And is there some trick? Is there some pattern? Is there some something that's going to point to something? In fact, it is absolutely unsolved whether there are infinitely many perfect numbers. You know, unlike primes, we know there are infinitely many of them because Euclid told us that 2,300 years ago. But for perfect numbers, we don't even know if there are infinitely many of them or if we've sort of found them all. So that is crazy. That is amazing. And the second part of that, what we kind of focus on in this part is it turns out every one of these perfect numbers happened that we've found so far all happen to be even, so can you find an odd perfect number? Can you find a perfect number that has to be an odd number? There's nothing instinctively about a perfect number that says it has to be even. There's no, none of its DNA or anything like that points to its uh, evenness. But it turns out that's the case, and we don't know why. So we've phrased this whole problem into cutting cakes where the sizes of the cakes are based on the factoring, and you're putting these pieces of these cakes together to get this bigger, bigger piece that you want to serve to King Arthur and Queen Guinevere and things like that. So, um, yeah, I love that problem.
1: You know, I could make this uh, interview go for several hours discussing (laughs) all the problems, but unfortunately, we only have 50 to 55 minutes, and there are a few more that just appeal to me so much, and I wanted to get to them. One of them was a problem that you called Holy Grail Vault. Not Mm. only do I love the problem, and it's easy to understand, but an individual named Ernst Strauss made a contribution to it. Ernst Strauss was Einstein's assistant back in the 30s, I think, at Columbia, and he taught at UCLA while I was teaching at UCLA, so I actually knew some. Oh, that's in your cool.
2: <laughs> that is cool.
1: So let's discuss that problem.
2: Yeah, the the story um, from the Camelot's world goes on that the Holy Grail has been found, and Arthur and the knights are trying to find a way to um, keep it safe. And so they devise. Um, they, they ask this question: Is there a way to create a special vault to to keep it in? And the, the grail kind of emits this light and the the punchline of the vault is the following thing and it's really simple for um, for us to kind of imagine in our mind's eye if i create a polygon just a polygon on the on the on a piece of paper just you know straight side edges and close it up you can make it any size you want to any shape you want to but imagine that the walls of the polygon are made of mirrors so you're in a mirrored room so you're standing there in the polygon and when light travels, you know it bounces off of mirrors, right? You're you're in that dressing room at that store before COVID hit, when we were at dressing rooms and stores, and you can kind I of like see, that time. Yeah. yeah, see like the light, you know, your infinite copies of yourself and things like that, because there's a mirror behind you and all these things. And and so the idea is, if somebody gives you a polygon and they make um make all of it mirrored on the walls, can you position a candle somewhere, or can you put the Grail somewhere so that the entire polygon is lit? In other words, light travels so much that any point you're at, there is a sequence of bounces that goes back to the source of light, that there's no darkness. And that's the problem, that given any polygon you the made of mirrored walls, you must be able to find a light source in a spot that's going to light it up. Either find a polygon that doesn't work like that or show me that every polygon works like that. And, um, and, I, and I love it. So far, the, the ball has been moved in different ways, and a lot of cool ideas have come, out, come about in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But the problem still remains open for uh, sort of a general polygon. It's beautiful. Well, you know, talking about the ball
1: having been moved, another way to visualize this, as you point out, is that instead of
2: having a room with mirrored walls, you have a billiard table. Yes, exactly. And now you can start imagining different parts of mathematics playing a role. You could imagine people in computer science or geometry caring about the light and reflection, um, people of physics caring about those lights and reflections. At the same time, the billiard ball, this reaction of exactly how the ball is going to traverse, uh, if the ball has, in some sense, infinite you know, energy to keep going, can it... Uh, can your cue ball get to every point on the billiard table? That's exactly right, Jim. That's a that's a great way of looking at it. In fact, that's how uh it has been progressed so far based on that perspective. Totally right.
1: Um as I said, you know, the problems here in this in this book I found fascinating. And one that I liked and relates to something we were discussing earlier because it relates to the Pythagorean theorem, is the one that you call night square formation.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. It's um so if you think about the Pythagorean theorem the way we phrased it is we wanted to look at it as um, knights marching out and the the way the knights would march out are in, are in formations of squares. So imagine you have a formation of uh, of 9 um of a three by three that forms nine soldiers. And you have another formation of four by four that forms 16 soldiers. So you know both of those uh, groupings, those formations are in perfect squares, but they can get together and form kind of a superstructure. These nine and these 16 can get together, nine plus 16 is 25, then you're gonna get a bigger five by five square of formation. And so here's King Arthur trying to defend the realm, the knights are getting together, Merlin's called out to do stuff. And they're trying to figure out, okay, so if you have these formations of two groups of soldiers where they can get together and form this bigger one, is it possible to get a formation of three groups of soldiers where you have a group, the first group um, that forms a square and another group that forms a square and the third, the A group, the B group, and the C group, so that every combination of them also forms perfect squares so a and b can get together to form this bigger square just like 9 and 16 got together to form 25 and then b and c can do it and then a and c can do it in fact all three can do it and this a b c this big massive army that you can create is that possible and uh And it it alludes, or actually it's uh, in some sense pushing the Pythagorean theorem, because A squared plus B squared equals C squared, that's Pythagorean theorem, is exactly what we see in terms of this notion of 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared for the 9, 16, and 25. And, um, yeah, beautiful work has been done. You could bring in number theory, you could bring in geometry. Lots of cool ideas have been pushed forward. But one of my favorite ways of viewing the problem is actually called the perfect brick. <laughs> I love that um, way. Well, yeah, that was the one that appealed to me. Yeah, and it's um imagine a brick with sides, you know, if the three formations are like A, B, and C, imagine the sides are A and B and C of the three length, width, and height of a brick. You want the brick to have whole numbers, A, B, and C to be a whole number. That's fine. You can we all can come up with bricks with a whole number sides. But you also want the diagonals of the brick. So if this is an a A, B sided brick, the diagonal that goes from one corner to the other one. The length of that diagonal is C, right? A squared plus B. That's a little Pythagorean theorem showing up there. So you want that diagonal also to be a nice whole number. So not only do you want the brick sides to be whole numbers, but their diagonals to be whole numbers, but you also want the long diagonal that goes from one corner of the brick through the brick all the way to the other side. You want that to be a whole number, too. And so far, we can make everything work, but not um, but not the long diagonal. <laughs> so that long one always kind of eludes us. We can get all the little sides going and, and the pieces of A's, B's, and C's and combinations, but you put them all together, the A, B, C, and we got nothing. So that's the that's the state of the art right now.
1: Um, just out of curiosity, can you make one with in which the uh, A in which the long diagonal is an integer, and two of the other three are uh,
2: integers also, but you can't. Yes. Get to- exactly right it's the constraint that's catching us exactly right. yeah it's it's, right?
1: it's it's not the long diagonal it's the fact that you can do three but not four
2: exactly right it, it's an over-constrained system of what it feels like but we don't know <laughs> we don't know if that's true or not and
1: the last problem that i wanted to discuss which is the last problem in the book is one of the you know is one of the great unsolved problems in mathematics that mm. people really have never heard of you call it lady of the lake it's the collapse conjecture
2: Yeah, this is... um this is this is the perfect uh, dinner table conversation problem, you know. You sit there, or at the airport, um, or somebody you're meeting, and it's. I love this problem because you could. Uh, it's it's based on just the most simplest of ideas, which is multiplying, uh, multiplying and adding. So, somebody gives you a whole number. Let's let's take the number as twenty. Uh, then the question is, if somebody gives you a number, if it's an even number, you cut that number in half, right? Because it's even, you have the right to cut it, and you get another whole number. So twenty becomes ten. Now you have ten as your new number. If if they give you that number, if it's an even number, you cut it in half, which now becomes five. Great. But the moment you get five, you know once you've kind of pulled all the evenness out of the number because you keep dividing it by it, then it becomes an odd number. If somebody gives you an odd number, then you multiply it by three and add one. Now that's a weird thing, Jim. But let's let's you know let's play that game. Like you multiply by three and add one. So five now all of a sudden becomes. 3 times 5 is 15 plus 1, it's become 16, right? And you know multiplying by 3 keeps the oddness, right? An odd times an odd is an odd, but the adding 1 makes it into an even one, which now allows you to divide by 2. So now 16 divides by 2 goes to 8, 8 divides by 2 goes to 4, 4 divides by 2 goes to 2, which then eventually goes to 1. And here's the question. Can you ever start at a number, a nice whole number, that you play this game even, cuts it in half, odd, multiplies by 3 and adds 1 to make it even, if you play that game, can you ever start at a number that doesn't end in one? does every number you start with eventually trickle down and ends into the funnel of one? and the number I picked 20 you know landed at one and you could try this with the number three, right so three times three is nine plus one is ten, which then becomes five, which then becomes sixteen to eight to four to two to one and you know you could try this for everything and this simple little thing about 3 times n plus 1, sometimes it's called a 3n plus 1 conjecture or 3x plus 1 conjecture, um, either you need to show that there are numbers that kind of have a holding pattern, right, that kind of cycle through, like it goes, it kind of gets near one, but it misses it, and it has a big loop that it keeps going on the loop over and over again. Or it kind of has a pattern that shoots off to infinity, right? It's actually going to not even in the funnel, just takes off out of the funnel. Either it's, it has a holding pattern or it just flies away. And this has a very chaos theory-like Yeah, like it feel, does, doesn't right? it? <laughs> because of this iteration, you kind of hit it over and over again. Either you get into some, you know, some cycle of stability or some very unstable thing that flies out of the handle, but nothing is kind of converging to one. And so far, everything we're trying is kind of converging to one. But more importantly, we have no idea why. (laughs) Um, And just, I think what you had alluded to about the Skolatz conjecture, Paul Erdős, very famous mathematician whose fingers are all over the different fields of math. One of the things he said is that mathematics is not yet ready for such problems. You know, and just going back to what you had talked about earlier on kind of the framework of this book, You know, if I think about almost any discipline, like if I think about music, you could think about the state of the art, like, you know, Beyonce's albums, like, wow, that is, there's somebody dealing with very hard issues and presenting it musically that I never thought that creativity was was there. And if you think about art, like one of my favorite artists is Julie Marity or Jean-Michel Bequiat, like it's amazing uh, works in terms of how they're struggling with different things or physics and quantum computing and literature of JK Rowling and Harry Potter and a thousand things. But in math, you realize this little problem about multiplying by three and adding one, or dividing by two. Paul Erdős is saying that we are and this problem is given to us when we're not even ready to handle that thing yet. And this goes back to how little we know in this beautiful, gorgeous world of mathematics, and we're just scratching its surface.
1: Yeah, Sethian, it's been a pleasure doing this interview. Um, I'd like to ask how
2: listeners can get in touch with you because I'm sure some will. Um, I think the best way to do this is just uh, email works the best. So I'm an academic, so my last name Davidos at San Feel free to send me an email. Uh, it's the start of the semester, and you know we're kind of pushing through, but I might be a little slow in getting back to you as as we you know get the gears oiled but um yeah i'd love to i'd love to hear from listeners that's my
1: penultimate question my ultimate question is and i have a feeling that if i were to get a full answer from you on this we'd run on for hours but do you have any future projects we might find interesting and get to talk about again
2: I think um, instead of a particular project, I guess I could tell you about a philosophy. And my philosophy is asking this question, what does it mean to embody mathematics? If we've been thinking about mathematics with our minds and we've done amazing things with thinking about our mathematics with our minds, what does it mean if we can actually touch math, if we can smell math, if we can use our senses as humans? to push mathematics forward not just our minds but our minds and our bodies what would that look like so that's been my goal for the past you know five to ten years and i'm going to spend probably my lifetime pushing pushing that
1: you know i've spent i've spent over 50 over 60 years in mathematics and i have never heard anybody um enunciate that particular idea so it's always nice to hear something new and different and it's been a pleasure and i wish you the best and i hope i hear from you again
2: Thanks, Jim. It's so lovely. Thanks for your kindness in all of this. Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks.